please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 28. Psalm 28 is where we will be this morning. Well, Psalm 28 is where we are, and David is once again in need of help. You ever been there where it just seems like always in need of help when you're going to the Lord? Well, as you go through the Psalms, it's like, well, David is just in need of help over and over and over again. And immediately what we see in this Psalm is that God is always available to help His people. So as people who are constantly in need, how sweet of a, of a truth it is that God is constantly available to help. And that's what we see coming together here in Psalm 28. I'll start by just reading the first two verses. Psalm 28, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Well, once again, David is having people problems. That's the type of help that he's needing is help with people, just like last week we were looking at Psalm 7, and David was having people problems. Again, it is so. And we see David suffering. And not only suffering, but wondering when God is going to show up. Perhaps some of you have been there too. In your suffering, you're wondering when God is going to show Himself in His help. And we do need to first notice, don't just overlook this, but in the first verse, the first few words, David goes to God. Where else would David go? He goes to the Lord. He calls out to Yahweh. And in his desperation, he's not pleading for the ear of man. He's pleading for the ear of God. He's pleading for the strength of the God of Israel. And surely this isn't the first time David has called upon God about this situation. You don't really get that feeling here when you read through this passage like this is the first time David's prayed about it. But perhaps it's the umpteenth time that David has gone to God about this issue, and he's pleading with God, my rock, do not be deaf to me. He needs both help and patience, doesn't he? <laughs> Can you relate to that too? God's timing is not our timing. And we see this over and over again in the Psalms, not when they're necessarily psalmists saying, don't be deaf to me, but they're saying things that are similar. Psalm 13.1, again, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 39.12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my father's. Psalm 69, verse 3, I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. A Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 83, verse 1, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. We see the psalmists over and over and over again, not only needing help, but needing patience to wait on God's timing. And that is the Christian life, isn't it? 
appealing and waiting. So David calls upon his God to hear him. And we know that God doesn't have a physical ear. We know that God is not a rock. Again, you look at verse 1 and David says, my rock, do not be deaf to me. But these are, these are figures of speech that tell us something about God's availability, about who God is, and how God responds, and what God can do. Not just His availability, but His ability. That He's a rock who hears, a rock who, who anchors us and steadies us in time of trouble. He's a God who's involved. And the Lord's power was David's only hope. Again, it's a fundamental point, but it bears speaking of here. David does not appeal to man. He doesn't look to himself for help. He doesn't look to another person for help, but he goes to God for help. There's a verse that I was reminded of this week that I thought this just works perfectly with this psalm. It's Jeremiah 17.5. And you're used to statements from the Lord that say, blessed is the man or blessed is the person who this or that. Look at Jeremiah 17.5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. You see, those things go together. Making your flesh your strength, trusting in mankind, that goes with turning from the Lord. Because when you turn to the Lord, at a, just a very elementary level here, when you turn to the Lord, you're turning away from the flesh. You're not trusting in what man can do, whether that's you or someone else. You're trusting in what God can and will do. I experienced this the day before I became a Christian. It was 2006, and it was you know, 24 hours before I first believed. To my job, uh, the summer job in 2006, and I was driving my 1996 Ford Ranger. It was a great, great truck. But in oncoming traffic, I saw a Ford Mustang, which is an even better vehicle if you know what I'm talking about, okay? And I particularly really like Mustangs. And so I'm looking at it and not looking at what's in front of me. And in front of me were a couple of cars stopped because they're turning left. And by the time I turned around, it was too late. And I rammed right into that car, and that car hit that car, and oh, what a mess. But then, what was even worse, is the man gets out of the car, the car that I directly hit. He gets out, and he is livid. He was driving some sort of Chrysler convertible, and he was angry. I remember specifically, he took his pack of cigarettes, and he threw them at my windshield. <laughs> And there I am, hands at 10 and 2, you know. Oh, what do I do? I mean, there's nothing I could do. And come to find out later, he paid his car off the day before. So, <laughs> he was upset. And uh, all I wanted in that moment was my mom. Maybe you know what it's like to just want your mom. So I took out my flip phone. And I called my mom, and she was there so fast. But there was that time where she wasn't there, and I was just there with the angry guy with the cigarettes. And it was just me and him. And I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I just learned how to drive. I don't know how to make an insurance claim or anything like that. I don't know what to take notes of. I'm just stuck with the angry guy. And there I am waiting for help. Well, that's a a bit of a microcosm of what's going on here with David. 
But there was no human being who could come and rescue him in that waiting. There was no one that he could call and immediately get help, immediately get answers. He had to go directly to God. Because our ultimate hope in desperation, of course, is God, isn't it? We can think of all sorts of ways that God uses people and things in our lives to help us, like our parents. But ultimately, our help comes from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every form of help comes from God. Without Him, we become just like everybody else, and we trust in our flesh. We trust in man. That is the great divide in life, faith. Those who appeal to the Lord for help and those who trust in man. So David here describes those who are oppressing him, verses 3 to 5. He introduces to us the wicked, he describes them, and gives us the reasons why they deserve judgment. Here are the people harming David, starting in verse 3. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requit them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requit them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of His hands. He will tear them down and not build them up. Well, we immediately get with these people who are oppressing David, we get a label. In verse 3, they are those who work iniquity. That is how they are categorized as human beings. Those who work iniquity. They are sinners who live without regard to God. They are sinners who craft selfish schemes, who seek to harm others for their own good. And they are defined by their sin because they've not been forgiven. When you think of this phrase, workers of iniquity, you can contrast that with a phrase we get or a label that we get in the New Testament. At the end of many of Paul's letters, he would talk about those who were with them, and he would say they are workers in the Lord. So you have these two basic categories of humanity, workers of iniquity and workers in the Lord. And these are workers of iniquity who are harming David. Sinners, not saints. Those who don't take God into account, fools and wicked people. Again, look at the start of verse 5. This is very important, the way this is phrased here. They do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of His hands. That is, that is the unrepentant person. That is the person who is rejecting God. The one who does not regard Him. Who, the people who don't bring the reality of God to bear in their lives. The ones who reject the truth in favor of the lie that they've conjured to live by. Fools and wicked people. We see also here that they're hypocrites. Look at verse 3 again with me, where it says, they speak peace while evil is in their hearts. They're hypocrites, they're liars, they're deceivers, and they're hiding their true nature. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity on man's heart. And so there's something convicting about having evil in your heart. And God, through His mysterious ways in which He works, He restrains sin around us. And 
What's in people's hearts naturally, that sinful, rebellious heart that people have by birth, it very, actually rarely shows itself in such a vile, disgusting way as it should. And so there's something in people that they just want to hide their sin. They want to cover their sin. There's a, there's a basic conviction that exists because they're made in the image of God and they know certain things are wrong. And so they seek to cover their sin. And of course, it helps them with other people. You can't win too many people while showing how evil you really are. Later on in the Psalms, there was a person described in just this way, Psalm 55, verse 21. Listen to this description. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The people we're talking about are deceivers at heart. Charles Spurgeon said this about deceivers. Spurgeon wrote, It is a sure sign of baseness when the tongue and the heart do not ring to the same note. Deceitful men are more to be dreaded than wild beasts. It is better to be shut up in a pit with serpents than to be compelled to live with liars. (laughs) He just had a way of putting things, didn't he? Well, surely David had been wronged by these deceivers. Surely David had directly felt the pain that comes from someone betraying you, someone setting you up for failure, someone entering into a relationship with you and and garnering some of your trust only for that person to wound you in their sin. Well, one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian is that we would be people of sincerity and be people of genuine love. God's people are not to be this way. I just want to make this point while we're here because it is tempting for each one of us to be deceptive continually. And that is not how we're called to be. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18 talks to this point saying, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's a real peace. Not a fake peace like this, but a real peace. We aren't to be people who deceive each other, who wound each other in hypocrisy and lies. 1 Timothy 1.5, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the mark of a Christian. Notice he says our instruction. He doesn't say, you know, my instruction or my ministry. It's the role of the church as members come together, as God is building his church. It is our goal corporately together to love one another from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If we want to be separate from the wicked in judgment as David does, David calls out, don't drag me away with the wicked. If we want to be separate from them in judgment, let us be separate from them in our living too, that we would live set apart lives from the world. And that's a third description we see of them here, that they are objects of God's judgment. In verse 4, David pleads that God would give them what they deserve, that there would be no grace for them, but that they would be repaid or given according to their work, according to the evil of their practices, according to the deeds of their hands, that they would be repaid for that. And at the end of verse 5, David gives us this promise, God will tear them down and not build them up. They are objects of God's judgment. 
And for very obvious reasons, God's people do not want to be associated with them in judgment, do we? We don't want to be associated with the wicked when God comes to judge. Those who die denying the Lord, well, they are judged according to their deeds. They are not judged by grace. They are judged according to what is due them. If you go to the end of your Bible, we don't have to go there now, but in Revelation 20, there's a great white throne, and on that throne sits the judge, and the judge is going to see the dead, great and small, even the sea is going to give up the dead, and they will be standing before him. And there are two books. There's the book of life, and there's the book of their deeds. And he's going to go through and see what he owes them. And for each one whose name is not written in the book of life, which would be all at that judgment, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will spend eternity apart from God, experiencing conscious punishment because of His good judgment. They will be judged according to their deeds. And of course, the reality of this is that many of their deeds harmed the church. There will be many people in that day who are at the great white throne, who are receiving what is due them, who sought to harm God and His people through their living. And so God's people, like David, plea for justice. That's why David is crying out, calling for justice, is because he wants God to take them away, but, but leave David. Don't take David with, with them. David says, judge them. You will judge them. You will tear them down and not build them up. And we should join in pleading for justice in faith. Do you remember in uh, Luke 18, Jesus is giving us a parable about faith and prayer. And he talks about the widow who's been treated unjustly by a human judge. And she continually goes after this man. And she's asking for justice. She's pleading for justice on her behalf. And eventually he gives in. And you know what Jesus tells us the principle is from that? Of course, the principle is not that God is like a man in any way. God is a perfectly just judge. The principle is, if an unjust man did that for a woman, how much more will God deliver justice to His elect who call out to Him day and night? And you know what He goes on to say? He will bring that justice quickly. That's the word Jesus uses. He will bring that justice quickly. Now, God's timing is not our timing, and we do well to remember that uh, God is long-suffering too, isn't He? That's why you got saved. It's because God's patient. <laughs> All right? But the promise is God gives justice to His people who call out to Him. So understandably, David does not want to be swept away with the wicked as though he was one of them. Verse 3 again David says, do not drag me away with the wicked. To be dragged away, it's to be drawn out, to be pulled away, to be brought forcibly to judgment, which will happen. And David wants to be separate from those who are going to be judged in their sin. He says back in verse 1, for if you are silent to me, God, I will become like those who are brought down to the pit. David wants to be separate. And it seems as though Psalms 26 and 27 go with this passage, that they all go together. Perhaps they were all written at the same time in David's life. Look at what he's calling out to God for, starting in 26, verse 9, Psalm 26, verse 9, the same theme. 
David says, Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. Verse 11, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations I shall bless the Lord. Then the next Psalm 27, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. David wanted to be vindicated, and he wanted to be vindicated immediately. He wanted justice for the sinner, and he wanted it quickly. He wanted to be separate, not only in the judgment, but he wanted to be separate in his death. Did you catch that in Psalm 26, verse 9, where he says, Do not take my life with men of bloodshed. David wanted a noble death. He didn't want to die in the same way that the wicked will die. He didn't want to perish in the same sense that the sinners would perish. He wanted to be separate because he knows God and he loves God. He's living for God and he's being harmed by the wicked. In all things, he wanted to be separate for God. And through faith, what we see in our psalm today, through faith, David does receive a present help, and you can too. No matter what you're going through in life, through faith, you can receive a present help from God, not a future far-off help alone. There's that too. But you can receive a present help. And look how the psalm shifts now. Verse 6, look how the tone changes Psalm 28, 6, Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank Him. The Lord is their strength, and He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. The psalm shifts here to exult in the promises of God to believers and the comfort that He gives to all of His people. We can start by noticing that we have the ultimate protector and helper, don't we? He is near to those who call on Him. And I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to hear it like you've maybe heard it a thousand times before. God is near to those who call to Him. Psalm 12, verse 5, we get more insight into how this works. Psalm 12, it's another psalm of David. The fifth verse says, Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set Him in the safety for which He longs. Because the afflicted cried, God arose. That's what he says. Because the afflicted, the needy, has called out in faith, God has moved. And he's placing the afflicted person in the safety that he longs for. Because faith, when we call to God by faith, he moves. He responds. He's not 
a rock in the sense that he's far off and immovable toward us. By his nature and character, he doesn't change. That's true. But he works in our lives, doesn't he? His hand is at work in our lives when we call to him by faith, when we plea for help. He helps. And if you're a struggling Christian here this morning and you're looking for something to latch on to here today, latch on to this. God hears you. He hears your cry and He responds to your prayer. As God's people, we can have absolute assurance that He hears us when we call for help. You want absolute assurance of something today? God hears you. He knows what's going on in your life, and He knows your requests before you do. He knows what you need even before you ask Him, Jesus taught us. And when we go to Him, He hears us every time. Our prayers are not those wishful letters to Santa that get written up and sent off, and then they show up in the newspaper. How'd they get there, right? That's not what our prayers are. You know, I've had a, a couple packages that I've been tracking this week, a couple of things I've ordered, a couple of older albums that maybe some of you would enjoy. <laughs> and isn't it amazing in our day and age, you get this tracking number thing, and you can just go to the website and you can throw in the tracking number and you can find out where that package has been, who sneezed on it and everything else. It's just cool. I mean, you can just track the whole thing all the way to your doorstep. It's amazing. And I even have this mail tracker on my email where I know if the email I've sent to somebody gets opened or not. It's pretty interesting, huh? <laughs> Some of you are wondering what emails I've sent you. <laughs> but we can, we can track these things today. I mean, so, so many things you, you, get sent, you can send off and you know where it is through this technology that we have. Well, if you had a tracker on your prayers, you know what you would see? Instantly received, instantly heard, every time. Instantly. God is always available. He stands ready to hear your prayers. Now, there is a way in which sin hinders our prayers, and the Bible bears that out, but generally speaking, for the people of God, as we come to Him in faith, God is always there, ready to hear, and we have assurance that He has heard us. It's not just the world's wishful thinking. This is faith's certainty. Christian, we, we have the Lord Himself in our lives. We have God. What, what makes a Christian different than everybody else? We have God. Isn't that a wonderful reality? And He is ours to possess in every thought. We can continually take our thoughts up to the Lord, and every time He hears us, I came across this great quote this week from Philip Bennett Power, lived a long time ago. He wrote this, It is of the utmost importance that we should have a definite object on which to fix our thoughts. Man, at the best of times, has but little power for realizing abstractions, but least of all in his time of sorrow. Dear reader, in the time of your trouble, do not roam. Do not send out your sighs into vacancy. Do not let your thoughts wander as though they were looking for someone on whom to fix. Fix your heart as the psalmist did and say, unto thee will I cry. It's a great reminder, isn't it? 
Where do you go with your thoughts? Where do you go in your times of trouble? Where do you take your anxiety? Where do you take your desperation? Verse 1 of our psalm today, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. That's where we take our requests. And we find here in this passage that God then, in His response, He's our shield. Verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am. Notice the present tense, I am helped. Not just will be helped, though that also is true. He is helped. In the here and now, David says, I am helped by my strength and my shield. God actively holds us up. He's our strength. That's God's active working in our lives. And He also protects us defensively. That's the shield. He is active and defensive in our lives. Christian, He is your sustenance. He is your might. He's your strength. How could you go through this life without God? You couldn't. He's our rock. He's the immovable. He steadies us through faith. The faith that He works in us, through us, He steadies us in this life, and He saves and blesses us when we trust in Him. Look down at verse 9. Save your people, David writes, and bless your inheritance. Save and bless. And notice here too, at the end of the psalm, he's opened up the audience. It's not just David's problem anymore. It's not just David's promises anymore. But now he's talking corporately among all of God's people. Save them, help them, bless them. He works in our lives even through the pain. He doesn't always save us from pain, does he? But he will always save you through the pain. He doesn't always bless you by removing pain in your life, but He will always bless you through the pain. And you don't have to look any farther than the life of Jesus Christ, do you? Think of our Savior there in the garden. Toward the end of Matthew's gospel, you see it in Luke's gospel too. Jesus was there with the disciples, you know, His, his trustworthy companions like Barney Fife. He says, watch and pray, and then they're snoozing five minutes in probably, Right? Watch and pray, and off they go. But there's Jesus, for all intents and purposes, alone in the garden. And he's asking God, remove this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there was no other way. Jesus had to endure the cross. Jesus had to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had to go through what he went through. The Father did not remove the pain. But was anybody more blessed than Jesus Christ? Not a one. And so, God doesn't always remove what we're asking Him to take away. And we should agree with Jesus when we pray and say, Not my will, but your will, O Lord. He will save us and bless us despite the pain in our lives, despite how it's clouded your judgment despite how it's hurt you mentally, emotionally, physically, in every way, how you are in pain because of what you're going through in this life, you have to believe that God's going to use it, that God's going to work through it, that just because He doesn't do what you asked Him to do, that doesn't mean He's not at work. We have to have patience in the suffering. We have to have praise in the waiting. We have to look for God's hand and see what God is doing in us and through us and around us. 
Because our captain, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, he's been there. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every way that we were, he was tempted, wasn't he? And so we look to the life of Christ and we see how God worked through that whole situation to save and to bless, and surely he'll do the same for us. Not only does he supply our strength through those moments, but he also is our defense. He's our shield. He's our protector. What hope for justice or what hope for vindication would you have in this life without God? Again, we're back to to no one. Nothing can help without the ultimate judge. Look at verse 8 with me. He's our saving defense, not just our defense generally, but he gives it an adjective here. He's our saving defense. To all of God's anointed, He is a saving defense. He's our spiritual refuge. He's saving us from that judgment of the wicked. Just as David prayed, don't drag me off with the wicked. So the answer is here, we recognize that He will be our saving defense. He is right now and He always will be our spiritual refuge in this life. And He's the saving defense for His anointed. You see that in verse 8. For His people, verse 9, God is a defense for each one of us. And I love how the Heidelberg Catechism starts out. It's one of my favorite things to remember from church history. It comes up in my mind often. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? That's a great question. Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is that, that point that's being made back in Jeremiah 17, 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Cursed is the man who trusts in his flesh. What is your one comfort, Christian? Your one comfort is that you are not your own. That in all things, in life and in death, and if we wanted to get you know, matrimonial with it, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, you belong to Jesus Christ your Savior. He is your defense. He's your protector. And this is clearly seen in the illustration of a shepherd that starts in the Old Testament. God didn't just start calling Himself a shepherd in the New Testament. There's several places in the Old Testament. In Psalm 100, verse 3, we are His people, the psalmist writes, and the sheep of His pasture. We belong to God. We're possessed by God. We're shepherded by God. We're protected by God. All those things that a shepherd does for the sheep, God does for His people. And we have the ultimate shepherd. Look at the last part of verse 9, the very end of the psalm. David cries out, be their shepherd also. And I love this phrase, carry them forever. He's asking God to carry His people in His shepherding role forever and ever. And we don't just see, like I said, the shepherd illustration in the Old Testament, but we really see a magnification of it in the New Testament. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Notice Jesus says, my sheep. That's another one of those places you can point to to show the deity of Jesus, just in that phrase. If Jesus is not the one true eternal God, who is he to say that he owns people? But here he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's an amazing passage. We have a shepherd, and we have the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He carries us. He bears and lifts us up forever. I want to show you this in Isaiah. We'll finish by looking at Isaiah today. Three passages in Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. So turn forward in your Bible, close to the middle. Isaiah chapter 40, and we'll look at verses 10 and 11 to start out. Look again at how God shepherds, carries, bears. Isaiah 40, verse 10, it says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, we've already started to experience this in our relationship with God, haven't we? But how much more will we experience this and understand this when Jesus returns? Our good shepherd comes back and he tends to his flock in person. And we're able to see him face to face. We're able to go see him in Jerusalem and go speak to him for judgment. We're able to hear his voice in a more tangible sense, as we've already begun to hear his voice now. When you think of this language of shepherding and carrying and bearing, I was thinking of uh, those animals that get caught in the oil spills. You know, you've seen those a bunch of times probably. Every time you've seen a Dawn soap commercial, you know, you see the little duck that's there in the soap, and they use Dawn soap to take the oil off the little duckling, don't you know? So you should use it for your dishes, I guess, is what they're saying. Um, <clears throat> they use bleach for a lot of things too, you know, and uh, all kinds of chemicals. But, but here is this little animal in an oil spill that's just totally unable to help himself. I mean, the, the end is going to be death. If he's stuck. I mean, the, the chemicals that are affecting his body from the outside and the issues that begin on the inside... And I don't know if you remember those commercials, the Dawn Soap commercials. You see that little duck wallowing there in the mire, and here come these big rubber boots right behind it, and hands come down into the screen and pick up that little duckling. And in the same sense, we are in the miry clay, the psalmist says. We're stuck, we're trapped, we're unable to help ourselves, and here comes our shepherd. And he's gentle and lowly in heart, isn't he? And he comes along and he bears us up and he carries us and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He saves us and he keeps us forever and ever. Let's go to chapter 46 of Isaiah. We see this again in Isaiah 46, starting at verse 3. Isaiah 46, verses 3 and 4. It says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, you, have, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. 
and I will carry you, and I will bear, bear you, and I will deliver you. Aren't these amazing promises of God of what He directly is going to do? The same God who is doing this for the house of Jacob, for the remnant of the house of Israel, is the God who comes to us in the gospel and offers us that same love and protection. Same God. Into your graying years and whatever's after that, whatever comes after the graying years. I'll have to ask some of you shiny heads what that is. Uh, Even after that, God is faithful to carry us, to bear us. Our psalm today says that He cares for His anointed. He has a special love for them. In Sunday school today, we were talking about that Hebrew word hesed, God's loving kindness, God's mercy. It's a special love that He has for His people. And one more place in Isaiah, we can see that. That's Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 9, we see God's tender care, His loving kindness for His people. Isaiah 63, verse 7, I shall make mention of the loving kindnesses, the mercies of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He has granted them according to His compassion and according to the abundance of His loving kindnesses. For He said, Surely they are My people, sons who will not deal falsely. So He became their Savior. In all their affliction He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His mercy He redeemed them, and He lifted them and carried them all the days of old." In God's great mercy, He lifts and He carries to safety. He cleanses and He cares for all the way through. This God loves us, doesn't He? And He carries us forever. So finishing with Psalm 28, in light of these realities, let us be moved to give thanks. That's where David goes. In verse 6 of our psalm today, David talks about, giving thanks, singing a song for God, to God, because of His great goodness, because of His loving kindness, because of His mercies. Blessed be the Lord, verse 6, David says. Verse 7, therefore my heart exults, with my song I shall thank Him. We saw in verse 2, David was lifting his hands toward God's holy sanctuary He's going to God. He's going to His rock. And, and what, do, what do lifting hands represent? But we're bringing nothing to God. We're trusting in God. We're calling on God. We're appealing to God. And David has done this over and over again on this issue, and he's been reminded that in the waiting, he is blessed. In the waiting, God is working. In the waiting, he is to continue to praise because he has helped. He has a strength. He has a shield. He's being carried by a good shepherd. And you better believe that when he goes to the Lord in song, as he says again at the end of verse 7, with my song I shall thank him, David's remembering this. He's remembering God's answer to his prayer. Do you remember God's answers to your prayers? It helps your praise. You can can sing from a place of exulting, as David is here in verse 7. You can sing in such a way as you remember how God has answered your prayers. Again, this is Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, They who pray well will soon praise well. 
Prayer and praise are the two lips of the soul, two bells to ring out sweet and acceptable music in the ears of God. Praising Him with a song from the heart that exalts Him. That is Christian praise. That's Christian thanksgiving. True thanksgiving. And so this week, hopefully as in all weeks, we would be Christians who are grateful, who display Christian thankfulness and gratefulness, not just scattered, general, ah, you know, I'm still kicking. I guess I'll thank God for that. You can do better than that, Christian. Remember how God has answered your prayers and be thankful for those. Remember how God has worked in your life and how He's proven Himself not only to be your strength and your shield, but to be your shepherd. How God has carried you all the way along. Remember how God has worked. And don't be thankful just for Turkey, though we should be thankful for Turkey. Okay? Be thankful for God's strength displayed in your life, that He has not been deaf, but He has certainly heard you and helped you. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you with gratefulness in our hearts because of who you are, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your good gifts. In your grace, you have helped us, and you are our shepherd. You will continue to carry us forever and ever. Lord, we love you, and we ask that this week you would give us more and more insight into the ways that we can be thankful and show our thankfulness. God, you are faithful, and we trust in you. Bring us through all that we're going through in this life as people of integrity for, for you, as people who are displaying your righteousness as you work through us. Help us to be lights in a dark world and to be grateful every day. In Jesus' name, amen.